The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. October 26th edition, unexpected edition of the PFT PM Podcast. I usually don't do Thursdays. Don't know why. It just works out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. This week, I figured what the hell. I enjoyed doing it, so we'll do it. And I didn't know what format to use for today, so I'm stealing the five down territory because I got five things I want to talk about. And I'm not going to take much of your time. You got things going on. You're busy, right? I want this to fit within the confines of your normal commute home or your dinner break at work or your commute to work or whatever the hell it is that you're killing time with. Some, someone or everyone has something or everything to kill time for. That makes no sense. Just listen. Just keep listening. It gets better. It can't get worse. Jake Cutler will get better, not worse, as his ribs heal. I saw Shefty. Shefty wants to get ahead of everybody. You know, when you're the leading information robot, you have to keep spitting out data or you no longer are relevant. What a tormented life that must be to be an information robot in any sport where your primary, if not exclusive, value is telling us things we're going to find out anyway, eventually. So much of what happens in sports journalism isn't journalism. So much of it is finding out five minutes before the announcement. And I don't know what value that really has. I've had this argument with people before in the business. Oh, it's, it's valuable. Well, it's not valuable. It's not. It, it, it makes you beholden to your source. If you're the one that they're calling five minutes before they announce whatever it is they're going to do. Now, in this case, the Jay Cutler potential return for week nine, that's not necessarily something that's going to be announced by anybody. This feels like something coming from Cutler or his agent regarding his own personal feeling of optimism as to when he'll be able to go. The Dolphins have no incentive or reason to put this out there that Cutler may be good to go next week. Now, when Cutler was first injured, I was told by someone with knowledge of the situation that Cutler tends to heal faster than others and look at two to three weeks. And I think it was Shefty that first said two to three weeks. So he's already committing ESPN on ESPN crime by saying Cutler will be ready by next week. Although I guess two weeks is, I mean, that's two weeks. Technically. Derek Carr was out two to six weeks with broken bones in his back and he was back exactly two weeks later. So I guess, I guess that's not contradictory. So I guess it's not really news that he'll be ready for week nine. But here's the key. Here's what I believe. And Chris Sims and I had talked about this on PFT Live on Monday. And I saw a tweet today from Armando Salguero that reinforces it. The invocation of the 100% rule. Now, the Dolphins haven't said it yet, but Armando knows that team better than anyone. And if he's saying that Cutler will play when he's 100%, that means somebody with the team has told him Cutler will play when he's 100%. And what that means, what that means 
is the team will decide when he's 100%. And the decision as to when Cutler is 100% will be influenced by the quality with which his replacement is performing. And for as long as Matt Moore is winning games and getting it done, Jay Cutler will not be 100%. I first became aware of that rule, I remember, in 1998 when Brad Johnson broke his leg week two for the Vikings. One of the best offenses in NFL history, and the starting quarterback is out week two. Enter Randall Cunningham, who had been out of football in 96. He was working in Las Vegas doing bathroom remodeling. He joined the Vikings in 97 as the backup, got his chance to play in 98, and with Randy Moss, Chris Carter, and Jake Reed, Randall Cunningham had a career rebirth. In many ways, all that the Vikings quarterback that year needed to do was drop back and throw the ball deep. Cunningham could do it. And eventually, the late Dennis Green said that Brad Johnson would play when he's 100%. And that became the common theme. He'll play when he's 100%. He'll play when he's 100%. And of course, he was never 100%. There was a point that year, if I recall correctly, where I think Randall Cunningham was injured. And Johnson came in and did okay. But he never was reinstalled as the starter. That's just how you gloss over that question. Now, I don't know that Cutler will tolerate that if it goes on for too long. If he gets to the point where he feels perfectly fine, it's going to be a tough sell. Because Cutler didn't come out of retirement to sit on the bench. He's getting paid handsomely whether he's on the bench or not. But he didn't come out of retirement to sit on the bench. So I don't know how long they can they can keep that going. But... Coach Adam Gase has very strong powers of persuasion, and I think he can talk Jay Cutler into going along with the whole 100% thing for at least a while. And then Cutler will exactly be at 100% when they decide that Matt Moore isn't the guy who's getting it done. And they want to put Cutler back in. That's what makes me think week nine is contingent on what Matt Moore does tonight. Thursday night. Now, you may be listening to this after Thursday night. If Moore urinates down his leg, look for Jay Cutler to play Week 9 against the Raiders. If Moore plays really well, it's going to be a little bit longer for Jay Cutler to be 100%. Brown's rookie pass rusher, I'm moving on to number two, by the way. Brown's rookie pass rusher, Miles Garrett, is 0% for this week in London. He's staying home. He has a concussion. So... In the same game, the Browns lost their best offensive lineman and their best defensive lineman. Joe Thomas for the year, Miles Garrett, until his concussion is sufficiently subsided that he can be cleared by both a team doctor and an independent neurologist to return. And it may be too late for Hugh Jackson or someone else by the time Garrett is back. See, Garrett's the best argument. Well, he's really not. Garrett's a good explanation for passing on Deshaun Watson once. If if the Browns had only had the first overall pick in the draft and not another first rounder that they picked up after they passed on Carson Wentz last year, then it would be hard to say that they completely and totally screwed up by taking Miles Garrett over Deshaun Watson. But they passed on Watson once and then twice. Now, if Garrett had been healthy all year, if he'd been getting a sack or two per game, then maybe 
whoever said don't take Carson Wentz last year and don't take Deshaun Watson this year survives Sunday. But I think heads are going to roll if the Browns fall to 0-8 early morning in London. Game against the Vikings. Only someone who is the most partisan Browns fan or under the influence of some sort of an alcoholic beverage is going to think the Browns will win that game. They could, but I don't think you're going to see anyone picking the Browns to win. Unless they win, I think something happens on the flight home or early next week. We've seen it before. Dennis Allen fired after the Raiders lost in Oakland several years back. Joe Philbin was fired after a Dolphins loss in London. Did I say Oakland earlier? On Dennis Allen? I don't know. I meant London if I did. Martin Mayhew was fired by the Lions as GM after a game in London a couple of years ago. Some people think Hugh Jackson will be out if they lose to go to 0-8 this year. 1-23 since the latest reboot. How does that happen? How do you win 1 out of 24 games in today's NFL? I think it's going to be somebody in the front office or multiple people in the front office. I, I... I think Hugh Jackson may get to finish the year because they have a conundrum as to who takes over as the interim head coach. Unless there's somebody on the outside that they bring in to be the interim coach for the rest of the year. There's enough guys that they're paying. Bring back Mike Pettin to be the interim head coach for the rest of the year. There is no offensive coordinator, which is great protection against an in-season firing. And the defensive coordinator is Greg Williams, the mastermind of the bounty scandal. I mean, I know it's been five years, but Greg Williams is a head coach again in the NFL after all the stuff that went down. And I know that the NFL overreacted with the Saints, that the NFL handled a cultural issue that was going on in multiple cities by catching one team red-handed and making an example out of them. And that's not the way you properly deal with changing culture in any business, in any industry, in any organization. But the moment we learned of what the Saints were doing, of what Williams was doing. Players from other teams that had played for Williams came out of the woodwork to say, oh, yeah, he did that here, too. Well, he did that here, too. Oh, yeah, he did that here, too. Oh, Williams, yeah, he did that here, too. And the NFL's position was to just take that rabbit hole and fill it with cement and not investigate anyone else. Because, see, all they needed was one to show that they were serious about player health and safety to show that they were willing to make a stand against a rogue organization that was jeopardizing unnecessarily the overall well-being of opponents. If you go down that rabbit hole and you find every instance of every bounty program where players were given extra financial compensation for rendering opponents incapacitated, There's a number out there that it gets to where Congress says, I think we need to have a hearing. I think we need to take a closer look at this. I think we need to consider some sort of an independent agency that has jurisdiction over professional football. That's the nuclear scenario for the NFL. That's the one thing that they're trying to avoid. Now, they may embrace it if gambling ever becomes legalized. And maybe they'll say, hey, that's fine because we're making extra billions multiple billions extra per year if we can find a way to take a piece of the gambling pie. But to get back to the point, somehow, 
steer all the way back around, back it up, spin it back around, avoid the tree. I don't know who the interim head coach of the Browns would be. I think the baseball guy at a minimum. Just just as a message to any Browns fans. And Browns fans are thinking about jumping ship. My niece, very loyal Browns fan, give her a hard time about it all the time in a, you know, fun-loving sort of a way. She's she's done. She's looking for a new team. How many other fans feel that way? How much can you put up with as a Browns fan? So I feel like they need to give the fans something to just show that they're awake, they're conscious, they're alert, and they understand that what's going on is not acceptable. So the Miles Garrett concussion makes it even more likely that the Browns will fall to 0-8, 1-23, and if something doesn't happen in the aftermath of that, if you're a Browns fan, you have to wonder if anyone is paying attention and if anyone within the organization truly cares. One thing the Browns could do, since they are very good at stockpiling picks, and I guess they could stockpile more draft picks that they could choose not to use on a potential franchise quarterback, any assets they have, current players, opportunity still exists to trade. The trade deadline comes Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Several years ago, they moved the trade deadline from the Tuesday after week six. By the way, I've moved on to number three now. They moved the trade deadline from the Tuesday after week six to the Tuesday after week eight. And I remember one of the most significant trades in recent years came when Jason Campbell, then of the Raiders, broke a collarbone on week six. The Sunday of week six, this was 2011. The trade deadline was two days later. The Raiders traded for quarterback Carson Palmer who had retired from, i.e. quit on, the Bengals and wouldn't have played at all in 2011, but for that trade. So the NFL, not long after that, moved the trade deadline to the Tuesday after week eight. And this is one of the points that I make pretty much every year. Pretty much. And my point is this. The trade deadline should go away. You should be able, if you're an NFL franchise, to trade anytime you want, to give up players or draft picks, to get players or draft picks. Why is there a deadline? What is the fear here? What's going to happen if teams are allowed to engage in trades after the Tuesday following week eight? What's the harm? You're going to have somebody help his friend in week 17 and hand him a pass rusher for nothing? There's too much accountability in today's NFL. You're not going to get away with the Brett Favre sack, the gift sack for Michael Strahan. Not not for something like a trade that gets done. And, and I submit to you that the Brett Favre gift sack doesn't happen in today's world because of social media. It's one thing to get away with it in 2001, let Michael Strahan break the single season record by taking a dive. It's another thing to expect that you're going to get away with it now, where there is even more scrutiny, even more questions. The platform is bigger. The the microscope is is more powerful. So I, I don't... And, and so what? If ownership 
is willing to let it happen because ultimately the ownership is going to do it. And I don't think a lot of owners are going to do favor for, favors for other owners. And you know what? If there's an owner out there that wants to do a favor for another owner because he wants that owner's team to stick it to some other owner's team in the playoffs, I think that's kind of neat. I think it adds to the intrigue. Oh, and by the way, if teams actually think that they're going to get dramatically better by adding a player week 17, let them give up something in the future. I don't know who you're protecting by having an artificial barrier as to when these organizations can engage in arm's length negotiations and trade assets. Who are you protecting? Who? Why? At one level, the NFL doesn't want teams to have fire sales. Well, so what if they have fire sales? Now, you know, what it could be is they don't want it to be too obvious that a team is tanking. And they don't want a team to trade away all of its best assets for three weeks to go and three losses to go to get the first pick in the draft. See, the NFL's approach to tanking is just to act like it never happens. Tanking for the NFL is the equivalent of the family member that never gets discussed. For whatever embarrassing reason, the family member never gets discussed. You just don't bring it up. You just don't talk about him or her. That's it. Act like it's not there. That's how the NFL deals with tanking. That's why the NFL doesn't have a lottery. A lottery in the offseason would be an excellent tentpole activity for the NFL. They could market it from city to city, just like they're going to with the draft now. Ultimately, a show about nothing, something that could be done anywhere, anyplace, anytime, or nowhere. Originate it in the league offices. That's what the draft could be. That's what the lottery could be. But you could do it in Philadelphia, Dallas, Detroit, Green Bay. Be a huge event. Big ratings on network TV. Ultimately, though, I don't think the NFL wants to dignify the reality that people tank. And if you have a lottery, that's telling the world that we think people tank. So maybe that's why they have a trade deadline. They don't want the dynamic of tanking, which is very real. They don't want it to be more obvious than it already is. Either way, the trade deadline needs to go. Eventually, the New York Jets decided that Rex Ryan needs to go as the head coach. He's now with ESPN. And I found it interesting, and by interesting, I don't know, messed up, screwed up. One of these days, I'll probably let some other word fly with up after it when discussing something like this. I'm getting closer, though. This is... This is me saying whatever I want to say, but, you know, I'm kind of like at the edge of the pool waiting to jump in with some of the more more harsh language. Every time I go to Apple Podcasts, I see clean lyrics next to this show. But you know what? PFT Jr. and his buddy, pardon my take, they got clean lyrics on the Apple Podcast description of theirs, too. And, uh, yeah, not clean lyrics. Anyway, what am I talking about? Oh, yeah, Rex Ryan. His comments to ESPN about... Mark Sanchez. With Sanchez, I knew he wasn't going to be a franchise quarterback, but I thought he'd be good enough to win with. With Sanchez, we just couldn't have it anymore. The boneheaded interceptions, especially in the red zone, it was mind-boggling. Unfortunately, Mark never really got better. I think that was the disappointing thing to me. I knew he wasn't going to be a franchise quarterback. He's talking about the guy that Ryan once got a tattoo on his arm with his wife wearing a Sanchez jersey. I knew he wasn't going to be a franchise quarterback. And that bothered me because when Ryan was a coach of the Jets, how many different times did he praise 
Sanchez. How many different times did he call him the Sanchez? How many different times did he say that I'm going to be here as long as Mark is here and we're going to be here together and we're in this together? And I don't know, maybe he was just trying to will him into becoming a franchise quarterback, but that's stupid if that's the case. You don't talk a guy into becoming a franchise quarterback. He either is or he isn't, based upon your evaluation of him prior to the draft. And the Jets traded up for this guy. They traded up to get Mark Sanchez. You mean to tell me that Rex Ryan, through that whole process, as they evaluated Sanchez and came to the conclusion that they wanted him enough to trade up for him, I mean, Rex could have said, ah, we don't need to trade up. He's not going to be a franchise quarterback. Nobody's going to take him in the top 10. Let's just wait. And if somebody else is stupid enough to use a pick before us on him, then they can have him because he's never going to be a franchise quarterback, right? I knew he wasn't going to be a franchise quarterback. That's the quote. And it's bullshit. Oh, there I did it. Oops, I said it. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Chapter 11 of a little book. Titled Play Like You Mean It by Rex Ryan with Don Yeager. It's signed. Boy, I'd forgotten that. To Mike, best wishes. Rex Ryan, P.S. Go yourself. No, that's not there. It is signed, though. I wonder if he signed it. I don't know. There's no chocolate smudges on here. I'm suspicious. Chapter 11 makes me even more suspicious. The name of the chapter, Mark Sanchez. Time for the first PFT PM book reading. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. I'm going to paraphrase it. Coming into my first year as head coach with the Jets, we knew there was a pretty good chance that Brett Favre was planning to leave. If we were going to be successful, the most important person that we had to draft was someone who could lead. It had to be someone who could take control of this franchise. For a quarterback, we set our sights on Mark Sanchez. For the record, let me clarify that previous statement. Mike Tannenbaum and I set our sights on Mark Sanchez. Mike and I were determined to draft Sanchez. Of course, now that he's become the first quarterback in NFL history to win four playoff games in his first two seasons, everyone in our organization says they wanted Mark! Exclamation point. Who wouldn't want to be responsible for making Mark a Jet? There isn't a single person in this franchise who doesn't respect him as a person and as a player. Honestly, the kid is unbelievable. He's not just a guy with GQ, good looks, and a good arm. He's the real deal. He has all the intangibles, talent, charisma, intellect, and leadership abilities. I believe Mark's going to be extraordinary in the NFL. I have believed that since I first met him. I refer to him as my baby. I know that may not be the most masculine way to put it, but it's the truth. He is absolutely my baby. He wasn't just my first draft pick as an NFL head coach. He was the first of many important decisions I was going to make for this franchise. Well, first of many important decisions I was going to make for this franchise. He's my guy, and I'm damn proud of it, exclamation point. I still have his draft card at home, tucked away in a drawer. I plan to get it framed one day. I'll just leave it at that. The rest of the chapter talks about how they finagled the trade up to get him. With Eric Mangini, the former Browns head coach, that was the year the Browns kept trading down and down and down, kind of like the Browns do now. Oh, no, we can't. Oh, oh no, we can't. it's our time to draft. Oh, 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 let's trade down. Yeah. Look, I, Ryan walked into this. How much of this crap are we going to hear from Rex Ryan? 
And I like Rex, but, you know, when he was a coach, there was always a pretty strong sense that the guy was just full of shit. And this is just proving everything we suspected all along. He just says whatever he says. And I don't watch the ESPN pregame show. I barely watch any pregame shows. And I don't think anybody watches Sunday morning pregame shows either. There's only one pregame show worth watching. Drum roll, please, NBC's Football Night in America. Because it's end of the day. You get caught up on everything that's happened. It's a good look back at the day that was and a look forward at the primetime game with all the right highlights. Everything's good about it. The pace, everything, the information, it it works. The morning pregame shows don't work because by Sunday morning, you know everything it is that you need to know. So I don't know what Rex Ryan is saying on these shows. I, I personally thought that Rex Ryan wasn't going to be very good as an analyst in a studio because my thought was he's going to be like Woody from Toy Story where he's got eight sayings and you pull the string and that's what he says. And he's going to be saying plenty of things that contradict things that he said. He's, he's Woody the contradictory, the self-contradicting cowboy. There's a snake in my boots. There isn't a snake in my boots. All right. Oh, I'm tired now. Last point. Fifth down. Stealing my Monday shtick. I mentioned this earlier today when I wrote the item about Colin Kaepernick being scheduled to meet the next time the players and owners get together. The players have invited him. The NFL hasn't said no. I don't think the NFL wants him there because of his pending collusion grievance. I don't think the NFL is interested in saying anything in the presence of Colin Kaepernick that can and will be used against them in the collusion grievance. And, you know, I look at it this way. I've been in this situation before where one of my clients... See, I spent a lot of years representing individuals who sued employers for violations of their civil rights. And early in my legal career, I was working at a firm that represents employers in those cases. So I kind of learned the playbook and I also learned some of the realities. And one of the very big realities is the employer hates it, hates it when an employee sues the company while they're still employed. They hate that. And you have to be ready as the employee to become the pariah because they turn everyone against you. Well, not everyone, but they try to. And so that same kind of awkward reality that happens when there's an employee at a local discount chain or casual dining establishment or wherever it is, if there's somebody there who has sued the company and is still working, that's awkward for management. It's awkward because anything you say can get twisted and turned and you feel like you need to tape record everything and document every interaction. So now this guy's coming in for these meetings while they're trying to figure out the anthem issue. And on top of it, you got guys like Michael Bennett and Russell Okung saying, until we get this Kaepernick situation resolved and get him employed, we're not interested in any type of a deal that potentially could convince the remaining kneelers to stand up. And Okung went off on the NFL for not really showing any desire to make real progress, which echoes some of the things that Willie Colon said last week. He was on PFT Live. He was on SNY's Daily News Live talking about what he had heard from the players who thought it was just a waste of time. See, I think the NFL is just hoping to say enough, do enough, just enough to convince the remaining kneelers to stand. And they're willing to tolerate a smattering of kneelers so they don't have to give in to the players, so they don't have to acknowledge the players have power. I don't think they want to ever acknowledge that the players 
indeed have power. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons I think Kaepernick doesn't have a job, because one of the lazy hot take reactions to the ongoing kneeling is, well, all these other guys kneel, they all kneel, and they still have a job. So ipso facto, I don't know who I'm imitating, ipso facto, Colin Kaepernick's kneeling isn't the reason he doesn't have a job. It's stupid. Kaepernick was the one who started it. Kaepernick was the Oliver Twist who went to the front of the room and asks for more. Kaepernick was the guy that let everyone else know, you got power here. And you can use it. And maybe you should use it. So, I think that's why Kaepernick isn't employed. And because he's filed that collusion grievance, I don't think the owners want anything to do with him. They don't want to say anything around him. They don't want to be around him. He's, he's against us. You're either with us or against us. And he's already made it clear that he's against us. Here's my broader point, though. And I've been meaning to write this at, at PFT. I've been talking to people about this. Because the more I think about the Kaepernick grievance, the collusion grievance, and I'm trying to line up an interview with Mark Garagos, maybe doing it Saturday. Garagos is the lawyer who represents Kaepernick. Maybe doing it Saturday and posting another special edition of the PFTPM podcast over the weekend. I think about the evidence that may be out there lurking on cell phone devices. And wouldn't the irony be delicious because that's how they supposedly brought down Tom Brady with the deflator comment and some of the other things that they got off of Beavis and Butthead's cell phone and ultimately Brady wouldn't give up his phone and he destroyed, oh, he destroyed his phone, he destroyed his phone, but they were determined to get him and they used the electronic evidence to get there. So that would make it just hilarious if it's electronic evidence that would bring them down in this collusion case. And if I was the NFL, I'd be very concerned about the digital evidence, the things that may have been said among and between scouts, GMs, assistant coaches. It's too many cats to herd. And if I was the general counsel of the National Football League, first order of business, get someone, and they have the people on retainer to do this. You get somebody who's fresh out of law school from... Covington and Burling or one of the firms that does the bidding of the NFL and they harvest all of the text messages on all of the phones from all of the decision makers. And maybe you just do a few teams at first just to get a feel for what may be out there, like the Ravens, the Seahawks, anybody who was linked in any way to Colin Kaepernick or was perceived as being potentially interested in Kaepernick. You don't have to do every phone of every person because you're talking about a lot of phones and a lot of text messages and a lot of frogs to kiss. But maybe you start with just a few teams, you get all the information off their phones, and you start looking through it. And you have that young associate from Covington and Burling in a conference room late at night, racking up billable hours. That's the only commodity that, that lawyers who work for the corporate firms have, no matter how efficient you get. You're only as good as how much time you put into any case, any matter, hour after hour after hour, for the rest of your damn life, unless you, unless you get out. Join me, kids. Find a way over the wall. But you know what? There's nothing current lawyers hate more than former lawyers who found a way out of the profession and found a way to make as much or more money in something else. Because it's golden handcuffs, man. It is. The golden handcuffs keep you tied to that conference room table. I've been there and you're looking through those documents and you're away from your family and you're away from doing the things you'd like to do. And you're just there with a highlighter and a stack of post-it notes and you're reading document after document after document. But 
That's what they should be doing. And you find anything you can. And I think if they did that, they'd find enough to make them say, oh, crap, when Garagos gets his hands on this, what's he going to do? When he gets his hands on that, what's he going to do? When he gets some of our key executives under oath, what's he going to do? And if you have any questions about that, there's transcripts out there. The Deflategate transcript. Garagos will get some of these people twisted up in knots. You take the digital evidence, you take the looming cross-examinations, and you piece it all together, folks, and it isn't all that hard to prove the existence of an express or implied agreement to stay away from Colin Kaepernick. So, all that said, here's what, and this is the thing I had some conversations with people about over the weekend. People who know the way the league works now and the way the league has worked in the past when Paul Tagliabue was the commissioner. Here's what would have happened if Paul Tagliabue was the commissioner. Tagliabue would have spotted this potential problem, maybe even before a collusion grievance was filed. But even after it's filed, he's going he's to understand the worst-case scenario. He's going to get enough information to realize the worst-case scenario isn't something you just peer down your nose at and assume you can throw enough money and enough lawyers at it to, to fend it off. Tagliabue would have called someone up and said, or, or not even called them, at the league meeting last week in New York, Hey, come on, let's go take a walk. I want to talk to you about something. So, uh, how would you like to host a Super Bowl? Oh, I'd love to host a Super Bowl. Oh, that would be great. You really would like to bring a Super Bowl to our city? Oh, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. But I need some things for you first. You know the, the rule now that you got to give up a home game to London. We'd have, you'd have to agree to that. Surely that's not a problem, is it? Oh, no, that's not a problem at all. No, we're happy to do that. We'd love to get the Super Bowl. Okay, also, why don't you give Colin Kaepernick a job? Like right now. Like today. Like offer him a job right now. And he doesn't have to take it. But I want you to make a public offer of employment to Colin Kaepernick right now. Right now. Well, well, you know, there are plenty of other cities that will host the Super Bowl. That's Something like that needs to happen. And yeah, it'll be obvious that the NFL has given in. And yeah, there'll be people who say, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. So what? So what? Because if they can piece together enough evidence to show that enough teams... We're in on this idea that they're afraid of Trump. They're afraid of getting called out on Twitter by Trump. They're afraid of exactly what's happened now. They didn't want that to happen. They didn't want the NFL and specifically the team that employs Colin Kaepernick to bear the brunt of that. It's not going to be that hard to show enough collusion to invalidate the collective bargaining agreement. But I, but I think instead, see, the NFL very reactive under Roger Goodell, more proactive under Paul Tagliabue, reactive under Goodell. And the thinking is, we're going we're gonna to put our head down, we're going to get our best lawyers on it, and we're going to fight, 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 fight. Regardless of what the truth is, we're going to fight, 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 fight. And they may fight their way right into a brick wall. So, my ongoing free advice for the NFL. And this really, I mean, look, I... I, I People think, oh, you're, you're in favor of Kaepernick. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, first of all, I hate, I hate lies. And I feel like lies were being told to my colleagues. They're not really colleagues. Stephen A. Smith thinks we're all colleagues because we're in the same business. That's a load of crap. I, I have no specific colleagues who were told these lies. Others who work in this business were told lies about why Colin Kaepernick didn't have a job. And wouldn't it be great? Not for the NFL. But wouldn't it be bad for the NFL and bad for the reporters who were duped by this if there are text messages out there 
where there's a discussion among teams, a, a discussion among GMs, assistant GMs, pro personnel directors, etc., regarding what they're going to tell their friends in the media to get them to push the idea that Kaepernick's employment has nothing to do with kneeling and everything to do with football. Because how many months did they feed us that? And by they, I mean certain reporters, and you know who you are if you're listening. If you're listening, hey, thanks for listening. Welcome to the party. But you know who you are. You know what you did. And you know you were peddling BS in order to advance a relationship, quid pro quo. Remember me when you want to give me that five-minute heads up on some transaction you're going to make. Don't forget me. Don't give it to Shefty. Give it to me. I've been doing this long enough to know how it happens. And that's what bothered me about Kaepernick. People, oh, oh, you and Kaepernick, why don't you employ him? Look, I don't care who it is. When I think that there is a big lie being perpetrated, I, I, I pride myself on spotting it and exposing it. Whether it's the deflate gate lie, the bounty gate lie, the Dallas and Washington salary cap penalties lie, the chiefs in trouble for talking to Jeremy Macklin prematurely lie, the Ezekiel Elliott lies. And I know that one's dangerous territory because I don't condone in any way domestic violence. And I believe if the guy's guilty, he should have been prosecuted. He should be punished and he should be suspended. But I don't think it's appropriate for an employer of a guy who hasn't been arrested or charged to subject him to a kangaroo court where he has no opportunity to defend himself. And I understand that sometimes the ability to defend yourself against charges that may be false may cause other domestic violence victims to not come forward with their claims. But damn it, he has to have a right to defend himself. And I'm starting to think they're going to lose that one. And I'm starting to think there's a chance they're going to lose this collusion grievance. And that's why, to get back to my original point and wrap this thing up, it would be very wise for Roger Goodell to take a walk with an owner of a team that may like, especially they've got this new Super Bowl bidding procedure where instead of having three cities or four cities say, hey, here's what we'll do to host the Super Bowl, they're going to start picking cities. Oh, we think you'd be an ideal destination for Super Bowl 57, Bob. Easy way. Easy way to make this go away. The question is, will they do it or will they simply wish they'd done it? All right, that's it for the Thursday edition of the PFTPM podcast. We're going to do a week eight preview, a full and complete week eight preview on Friday, possibly with a guest, possibly, I don't know, maybe. MDS, maybe. Darren Gant, maybe. Shereen Williams, maybe. Josh Alper, maybe. I guess I got to throw Curtis Crabtree in there as well, maybe. Or maybe somebody else. You know, next Wednesday is the 16th anniversary of ProFootballTalk.com. And I contacted... My internet son, PFT commenter today about joining me for this unexpected Thursday edition, and he has other things going on. I guess it's the afternoon he gets high. I don't know. But next Wednesday, wait wait a minute, that would be every afternoon. Next Wednesday, he's joining me, which I think is fitting. An internet family reunion on the 16th anniversary of the day that profootballtalk.com was born. So, uh, but we'll have plenty more before then. Week 8 preview Friday, maybe a special edition of PFTPM over the weekend with Mark Garagos. We'll be cranking out content at profootballtalk.com, PFT Live on Friday. Doug Peterson, the Eagles head coach, joins me at 8 a.m. Eastern. Chris Sims is on his way to South Bend for the NC State 
Notre Dame game. So a lot going on. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Remember, remember, if you've made it this far, you'll probably like it. So if you like it, subscribe, rate, review, repeat, repeat, repeat. Thanks for some of your time. Talk to you tomorrow. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.